we are wrapping up our series in, in this Gospel of John. I cannot believe that it's already been nine weeks. And, and when we started this series off, the goal of the series was to focus on some more difficult and uncomfortable teachings of Jesus so that by the end of it, the hope was that we might come to a more honest place with Jesus, meaning that we will be more honest about who he is and more honest about who we are. And so that takes us to some places in the Gospel of John where Jesus comes across a little untamed. Right? So that was the title of our series, Jesus Untamed. And so we will, what we discover is that Jesus is not like this suave, regal, yeah, he's charming, but like he's, he's definitely dynamic, you know, but we, uh, we often we see this Jesus, and he's a bit cheeky, you know, he's, he comes across, he, he has some sass, sometimes the first letter of the word is not there also, like, you know, he's, he's that kind of guy, um, I think some, some, some of you all got it, and then, um, and at times he just comes across so, comes across so brash that it really drove people away. And it wasn't just like the people in power and leadership. It wasn't the religious leaders, just them. It wasn't just the political leaders, not just them. But it was just like regular common folk who at one point believed in Jesus. And it was just like, we can't. I don't. This. And so they walked away. And, and so that made all sorts of people question his authority. All sorts of people question his credibility and his witness. And, and Jesus is teaching because he, he, he constantly challenged their social structures, power dynamics, religious traditions, their understanding of God, what it means to bear witness, their gender roles. And, and so the, at times his audience were left saying, like, this is a hard teaching. We cannot follow this. And one of the more difficult things about Jesus' teaching was that he was not so subtle in telling people that he was... Jesus, the son of God, he's the Messiah, the son of God. And that eventually got him killed, right? So they just couldn't believe it. They couldn't receive it. So there's no way the Messiah could possibly look like this. There's no possible way for the Messiah to talk like this. There's no possible way. This doesn't feel like the Messiah. Like in, in their eyes, this is blasphemy. This is offensive to God. So they ended up killing Jesus. And so the text today is the aftermath of Jesus' death, chapter 20. This is the second to the last chapter in this gospel. And this is absolutely the lowest point in a disciple's journey and their perspective or in, in their kind of track in following Jesus. And so the 11, right, are now three days grieving. They are reeling from the trauma of seeing their rabbi, teacher, Lord being captured tortured, executed, publicly humiliated. And I would imagine they would carry some shame related to that. I would imagine that there might have been some doubt and some confusion. I would imagine that they weren't too sure about Jesus' credibility at this time. They probably felt hopeless, crushed. And so that's where Jesus enters the scene. That's where we get this text. So it's not, not too long. Um, so why don't we read it together? We'll, we'll have it up here. And so let's read it together. On the evening of that first day of the week, 
when the disciples were together with the doors locked for the fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now let's unpack what's happening here. Uh, this takes place Sunday nights, right? Earlier in that day, at dawn, Peter, Mary, and John, which sounds like a really great band name in my, my opinion, they go and check Jesus' tomb, and they discover that Jesus' body is missing. Peter and John, uh, I don't know what their responses were, but we know that they left early. I imagine they freaked out. They might have been scared that maybe they're like, maybe this is a government kind of ploy thing. I don't know. So they bounce right away. But Mary stays. Mary stays to grieve the lost body of Jesus. And I feel like it will be, we will be doing injustice if we don't, and actually to this text and to this month, which is um, Women's History Month, if we didn't talk about how Mary stuck around, and then Jesus revealed himself to Mary first before he revealed himself to the 11. And I'll, that's important to highlight because during Jesus' time and culture, a woman's testimony wasn't held up in court. Their witness didn't matter. They were considered invalid. So for Jesus to reveal himself to Mary as a first witness of his resurrection, this is significant. This is huge. And we've seen something like this happen before in the gospel where a woman was a, became a forerunner of Jesus' presence for their community. We're talking about the Samaritan woman at the well. And we, we see another type of this forerunner kind of figure in the way beginning of Jesus. Not a woman, John the Baptist, where he, he's a forerunner for Jesus' presence to um, all, of, all of the Jewish community. So then Mary goes to tell the disciples what she saw. And we don't know exactly what the disciples' reactions were to Mary, but we can assume that they were still distraught. Uh, my guess is that the 11, the, the disciples, they're probably no different from the rest of their culture and society. They probably most likely felt like her witness was invalid. But one thing we know for sure from this text is that they were scared. They were scared, why? Because of the Jewish leaders. And which implies that they weren't sure about their status. They weren't sure about their stat, uh, standing in the wider community and what it would look like going forward. In some ways, I would imagine they probably um, were worried about being cut off from their social and religious systems, their circles. But, and I wonder, I wonder if that might have been just as burdensome for them as replaying Jesus' death in their minds. So, understandably so, with the shame and the fear, uncertainty of their relational standing with everyone around them, they hid. They bunkered down. And it's right there in the middle of that where Jesus shows up to the eleven. And I love how it's written in verse 19. We could pop it back up. We don't have to read it again, but we'll just look at it. Um, we see that the disciples, they locked their doors out of fear, right? And then Jesus came in and stood among them, declaring peace over 
his disciples. And that's a bit of a trip. That's a bit of a trip because like, and it's, it's really brilliant in how, what the writer is doing because Jesus is greeting. He says, peace be with you. Peace be with you, which is a common greeting in Jesus' time. It was both used as a alo- or as like, it's kind of like, it was used kind of like aloha. You know, it's both a hello and a goodbye. And so, but for Jesus to be physically present in the room that had been filled with their fear and grief for the past few days, and for the Prince of Peace to miraculously enter into the room and say, peace be with you, this isn't just like a casual hi. This is more like, like a, like a hello, like this is like, this is, this is something huge. Like this is, this is a different kind of like reality that we're living in. Like that, that in the grief, this is a Jesus reality that they're being invited into. That in their grief, in their fear, that Jesus is there. And then as they become aware of it, it feels like a miracle. And I can say with full confidence that this reality is true for us today. Because I've seen that happen with me. I've seen Jesus do that with me. And it was this very thought, this very understanding, this concept of in our grief, in my grief, in my hurting, in my, in my shame, that Jesus miraculously enters in. I, I try to shut it off. I try to shut off every door possible. I try to be unseen. But Jesus shows up. He shows up in our own hurt, in our grief, in our trauma, in our pain. I began to see God miraculously present himself in my grief and fear. At first, it was hard to see like the disciples. You know, I, I felt so much shame. I was concerned with, um, with my hurt and my trauma. But I was... I was I was worried about how, might that, how that might impact my social circles. I was worried about how that might impact my role as a pastor. But like a miracle, but like a miracle, God materialized himself through people and through circumstances. And I found him in spaces that I had closed off for a really long time. And many of you are he- that are here in this room have been in that room with me. And to experience that as a people of God, that is a miracle. To walk in that together, that is a miracle. We would like to think that our, as we're locked in, in our grief and fear, confusion and doubts, anger, frustration, that there's illusion of, of, of self-control, or there's illusion of control, and there's illusion, a sense of safety. But God loves us too much to leave us alone in it. And that is where we see Jesus, too. That is why we can say that Jesus is God with us. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us in this. He is with us in this, in all of this. He is with us now. When we have so much to grieve, so much to be frustrated about, so much to be scared about, so much to be uncertain about. I mean, 
Seems like the world's on fire. Seems like we're on the brink of World War III. Gas prices are so high, we don't know what to do with ourselves. American Christianity is in like the Civil War. And as try, we can try as hard to shut ourselves in that room, but God loves us too much to leave us in that room. And like a miracle, God will find us there and we'll find him standing there with us. Because he is peace. He is with us. Like the old song says, right? He is our peace. He has broken down every wall. He, he is our peace. He is our peace. What grace is that? What amazing grace is that? Next verse, verse 20. And so Jesus shows up. He, he shows them his hands and his side, and the disciples are overjoyed. I love this. Like, and then the, the disciples experienced joy because they saw the work that Jesus did. The healed body of Jesus brought healing for their souls. The resurrected body was also resurrection for their souls. And that's for joy, and rightfully so. But, but let's get real, real here, okay? Because like, as followers of Jesus, our healing, our healing doesn't end with joy. And joy is very important. Not to kind of downplay that, because joy is totally an important part of our whole healing process, and joy is a very appropriate response um, to our healing. But our healing doesn't end with joy. Instead, our healing starts a new purpose, and that's what we see in verse 21. Again, it says, Jesus, Jesus says this. He says, peace be with you as the Father sent me, I am sending you. And then Jesus breathed his Holy Spirit on the disciples and commissioned them to the ministry of reconciliation. And the idea of being sent and commissioned is recorded in every gospel account. This is one of the like, very specific threads um, that really tie the gospels, the four gospels together. But the unique telling of the gospel of John is that the disciples' commission is written as a relational thread that connects God to Jesus and Jesus to us. Our mission is Jesus' mission. And Jesus' mission is is God's mission. Another way to say it is this, and we have it in this because I, I like this. We are on mission because Jesus is on mission because God is on mission. We are on mission because Jesus is on mission because God is on mission. So what that means is that when it comes to our purpose as a people group who have been healed and are being healed by Jesus, we, we must think deeply about how Jesus lived out his purpose and his mission here on earth. This is central, central to the Christian faith. That means what we, have, we have to think about how Jesus, engaged, how, how Jesus engaged his indigenous context. Because Jesus wasn't absent of culture. He was very present to his culture. His ministry was very much in conversation with the dominant culture, both as a Jewish man and as also as someone who was under the authority of Roman Empire. And we have seen him speak with authority to his culture, in the context of his culture, against political power, against the idolatry of money, against patriarchy, and so many other things, so many other spaces that are unique to his own context. Jesus did not exist outside of culture. He was very much a part of it. And his life reflected it. And in the same way, our calling as followers of Jesus should reflect that also. And also this means that we have to think deeply 
about what it means to be beloved ones of God. Jesus' active ministry was drenched in his identity and certainty that he was the son of the beloved son of God. The Gospel of John doesn't um, kind of brushes over this idea, but other Gospels elaborated on this more in detail, where Jesus doesn't, he doesn't do anything. He hasn't done a single lick of ministry. He, doesn't, he hasn't turned any water into another kind of substance. He, you know, like, he hasn't healed anybody. He hasn't fed anybody. With like, you know, he hasn't even done the temptation stuff yet. And so God shows up and says, this is my beloved son. We are loved as beloved. We are beloved not because of what we do, but simply because we are. And that was the essence of Jesus' ministry. He just was. He was who he was created to be. And that in itself bore witness to who God the Father was. Jesus was so assured in his identity as the beloved one of God. And in the same way, when you and I live in our belovedness in God, that in itself is the work of evangelism. Friends, you and I, we have a divine purpose as followers of Jesus to embody and to impart the love of Jesus because Jesus embodied and imparted the love of the Father. This is true evangelism, to embody Jesus and to impart Jesus. Just like the song that we sang earlier, we, that is the authority. That is, that is the authority that he has given us to embody it, and to impart it. I'm going to switch gears here for a little bit. Because what we have seen in the last nine months, or not nine months, what we have seen in the last nine weeks in this series is that Jesus spoke pretty uh, untamely. And so I ask for your grace because I am going to switch gears and speak a little untamely, okay? And it is this. I am pissed off. I am pissed off about um, how the word evangelism has been hijacked in the church. And so I use this word intentionally because I'm just getting some strong feelings about it today. <laughs> because, because in the Americas, the word evangelism no longer means good news. It's far, far removed from the life that Jesus embodied. It's far removed from the life that Jesus, the love that Jesus imparted. When folks hear evangelism, especially evangelicalism, they see and think and imagine other things than the incarnational loving ministry of Jesus. And that led him to the cross so that souls would be restored and resurrected and healed in him and through him. But now evangelicalism has become this thing about creating churches and cultures that spread like cancer and systematically hurt people and leave people burnt and cast it out. Evangelical, evangelism has become like this system of leveraging or like political power platform and left and right. Evangelism has become this tool of manipulation and control for personal gain. Evangelicalism has become this super spreader thing where we, we say that it's okay to have these kind of events because even in the midst of the pandemic because we feel like this is so important. The dehumanizing of life it's antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Evangelicalism is more than just morality. 
It's more than sexual actors, and those are important. It's more than just getting into heaven. There, um, speaking of um, Women's History Month, um, there's this uh, wonderful, wonderful woman. Her name is Henrietta Mears, and she was a uh, Bible study teacher in um, Hollywood Presbyterian Church. And she has this quote. I wasn't planning on sharing it, so I'm going to butcher it, but she says, this is something to like of this. It says, the Christian faith, the Christian life, isn't about morality. It isn't about what's right and what's wrong. But it is about being in fellowship with Jesus. True evangelism is saying, we can know him. We can be with him because he is God with us. That is true good news. And we, somewhere, somewhere along the American, in the lines of American Christianity, we lost sight of that. And we replaced it for shallow, shallow things that are nowhere near the gospel, the redeeming gospel of Jesus Christ. True good news is God sent his son, Jesus, so that we can experience heaven, not when we die, but heaven now. Because the presence of Jesus himself is heaven. So um, I'm on a personal, personal mission to reclaim this idea of evangelism. Because for me, that is Jesus. It is the person of Jesus. It is the hope and joy and life that is found in walking with him day in and day out, in all of my insecurities, in all of my little quirks and my dorkinesses, Jesus is there saying, that's, that's my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus, I begin to see and accept who I am created to be because that's how Jesus lived out. That was his witness. He fully lived out who he was created to be. In the same way, we are called to do this. In church, this is why exists. we exist as a church, to do this together, to pursue this endeavor together. It's to spark hope that this Jesus who embodies love and imparts love, who is our peace, who breaks on every wall, um, is present and here with us, even in a world that's seemingly in flames. I, um, there's a story that I've heard um, that's been kind of like haunting me recently. I just can't quite shake it off. And I heard the story from this pastor. His name is Brian Zahn. He's a pastor in Missouri. And um, his, his bio says, full-time pastor, part-time author. And um, in, he, he recently wrote this book called When the World is on Fire. And he actually started writing this coincidentally before COVID. And then he kept writing it through COVID, it's like, oh yeah, this is, this is where I'm at. And so he kept writing this book. And in this book, he, tell, he writes a story, well, not a story, this account of, um, of the Notre Dame in Paris. Yeah, you know, before, um, before the world is on fire, Notre Dame was on fire, right? Remember that in 2019? I think it was April. 
And um, and he, he talks about the response of the Parisians as they're watching the Notre Dame play. And he said he found this fascinating because um, France and Paris is, in some ways, it's like it's seemingly like the ground zero for Western secularism. And so many people walk by, so many Parisians walk by the Notre Dame without even like batting an eye about. Oh, I mean that's Notre Dame, but you know they could care less about Jesus. You know what I mean? Um, and but when when Notre Dame was on fire, no one was apathetic about it. No one was saying burn it all down. You know, um, Notre Dame in um, in the, the translation in, in, in French is our mother. You know, our lady, but our mother. You know. And so when they're crying, they're crying because their mother is on fire. Their mother was burning. And they felt great, great uh, sorrow because they knew that something of value, of something of worth and value and beauty, which they just walked by so many times without Less, there's a possibility that they might lose it. Like I, like I, I've been a follower. I've been a Christian all my life. I, I grew up in church, and so I feel like I have like the freedom. <laughs> I feel like I have every right to critique the church, you know, because I grew up in, in it. Um, but it's it, it feels different to critique it if there's a possibility of like, oh my gosh, it might just completely disappear. You know what I mean? I feel like my critique would be like much like, oh my gosh, like you have to like preserve every bit of it. And he talks about how that must that must have been like what the Persians were thinking. Just this deep sense of like, oh my goodness, we might lose this thing that's so important to us and such an essential part of who we are. And the story goes um, that, uh, or no, it's a story. It, this actually happened, but there apparently Notre Dame was really close, about twenty minutes away from completely being lost. Um, and one of the reasons why was um, the two towers on the side, they were both about to collapse. And so the primary uh, fire group team were, um, were commanded to go up to the towers, in these narrow towers, and carry these heavy, um, heavy uh, hoses and try to, um, try to stop the fire from going up the towers. And because it was such a dangerous task, they're like, no, we can't, we can't do that. I, like, we're, we're, we're grieving and we're hurting about this, but... We cannot risk our men and our, our people um, because this is about to collapse. And so a volunteer group of firefighters came, and they're like, we know the risk. We know, we know what might happen. We know we might die on this hill, but we're going to do whatever we can to preserve this. So they went up, and they were able to save Notre Dame. And um, I shared that story with you. And the reason why it sticks with me because to the outside world, people might, the church and Christianity seems that way, but I want to be in that second group. I want to be in that second group. I want to go up there and do whatever I can because there's beauty here. There's hope here that they're fighting for. I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And that taste is worth fighting for. I think that's what 
I think that's what Jesus saw in humanity. Yeah, I, I, I know human, humans do a lot of dumb things. I know they're sinful. I know they're prideful. I know they're arrogant. I know they're selfish. I know even in their best attempts, they are going to cause some trouble and some ruckus. But still, I see value. I see worth. And it's worth fighting for. I pray that we would be that. I pray that we would embody that. And I pray that as a church, that to the world around us, to this community, to the city, and to the people around us. Let's pray. Amen. Um, Jesus, I'm, I'm so thankful that you um, you never gave up on us. You, ne- you never gave up on me. And even in my best attempts <laughs> of trying to be good, um, I feel like there's always like a flavor of like selfishness there, pride there. And, um, and still, you look at me the way a father and a mother would view their child with loving eyes. And I pray that you would give me those set of eyes. I want to see the world that way. I want to see your church that way. I want to see our neighborhood that way. Help me to embody that love and impart that love in all things. Jesus.